This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Tuesday, June the 28th, 2022. I'm your host, Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in and being here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast of the entire show is on demand and free every day if you can't listen between 3 and 6, although we do recommend that. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I will be up late this evening with our friend and colleague Shannon Bream as a panelist on her show, Fox News at Night, on the Fox News channel a little after midnight Eastern this evening slash early tomorrow morning. So perhaps I'll see you there. You can tune in. Maybe you can record that if it's a bit too late for you. Here's the lineup on the radio today. Republican Congressman Kevin Brady. GOP member from Texas. He will join us later this hour. In the next hour, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. She will be here reacting to the Dobbs case and more. Also, Charlie Hurt, our colleague at Fox News, Washington Times opinion editor. He will be joining the program in our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. We're keeping our eye on... Some January 6th committee hearings happening today. This one was not scheduled today initially. We were told they were off until July, but then they announced, the committee did, that they were now in possession of new information. And a former top aide to the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, testifying under oath today and making some explosive allegations. We'll be covering some of that a little bit later on in the show. I do want to open, however, with this, a story that is getting... Not nearly enough national attention, and it deals with the border crisis. Because even though we seem to just careen from one crisis or major story to another, there are some underlying crises that just continue to grind away. Obviously, inflation being a huge one and gas prices. I was able to fill up my car yesterday for the low, low price, I think of 502 it might have been per gallon. Another one is the border crisis and illegal immigration. And an absolutely horrible, heart-wrenching story out of the state of Texas. The whole nation had its eyes on Texas not long ago with the horrible school shooting in Uvalde. In which 19 children were murdered in cold blood and two teachers. And all of the outrageous developments and revelations that have followed about the law enforcement response, that has been a giant national story for good reason. By the way, Congress passed a bill in response to Uvalde, 
which was hotly debated and then overshadowed by the Supreme Court on guns and abortion. So it actually passed. Very few people paid much attention to that. I saw a poll that showed 71% of the country supports it. I wonder how many people even know that it passed. But in this incident involving the border crisis, the death toll is now 50. That's an updated death toll from the Dallas Morning News. Let me just read to you from this story. Authorities identified the nationalities of some of the dozens of people found dead in a tractor trailer in San Antonio Monday, with the death toll rising to 50. About a dozen others were taken to hospitals, including four children. Among the dead were 22 Mexicans, seven Guatemalans, two Hondurans, and that's according to Mexican Foreign Affairs Secretary Marcelo Luis Ebrard Casubon. So Mexican authorities and American authorities are trying to figure out who these people are, the deceased. And there are still some other victims who passed away whose identities and nationalities have not yet been announced or identified. So the U.S. and Mexican government are coordinating in the response here. A city worker according to the Dallas Morning News, found the gruesome scene on a back road shortly before 6 p.m. yesterday. This according to the police chief in San Antonio. Hours later, body bags spread on the ground near the trailer with bodies remaining inside as authorities responded to the calamity. Those taken to the hospital were hot to the touch and dehydrated. No water was found in the trailer. Just the details are appalling. Quote, they were suffering from heat stroke and exhaustion, said an official. It was a refrigerated tractor trailer, but there was no visible working AC unit on that rig. The tragedy is among the deadliest that have claimed thousands of lives in recent decades as people attempt to cross the U.S. border from Mexico. They cite an example from 2017 when 10 migrants died getting trapped inside a truck. In 2003, 19 migrants were died in a truck, uh, were found dead, rather, in a truck, also in Texas. Three people have been taken into custody in connection with this. Unsure if there are human trafficking charges coming, but this is just horrific. 50 dead people in the back of a truck. Now, we talk about the border crisis a fair amount on this show. We were down at the border not long ago, in fact, when a Texas National Guardsman drowned while he was trying to save two illegal migrants who were struggling in the Rio Grande River. He jumped in to help them. He did successfully save them. They turned out to be alleged drug smugglers. He drowned and died. You hear examples of people getting sucked under and drowning in the river. People suffering heat exhaustion and succumbing in the desert. And then just atrocities like this. People are dying trying to come to this country illegally. And they are being incentivized to do it 
by the president of the United States and the people working around him. I know a lot of times in our politics, there's finger pointing. The Democrats love to say that every Republican policy is going to kill people. From tax cuts to a change in Internet regulation. We're hearing it on the abortion debate. People are going to die. Unfortunately, death is at the center of the abortion debate. But it is not an exaggeration to say that this border crisis is lethal. Even if you ignore the fentanyl and the drugs and the weapons coming into this country and some of the criminals who've come in and then commit crimes, including murder, you can take that entire category of death and misery and danger and put it off to one side. People who are just trying to get to this country in violation of our sovereignty because they think that now is the right time and they feel like there's a green light and they've got a chance to say to stay here. People are dying. And in this case, 50 of them died all at once, suffocating and basically roasting in the back of a truck. It's just almost too awful to think about. And yet it's real. We distinguish between the people who are encountered at the border, apprehended at the border. Many of them are processed and released. And the known and unknown gotaways. The known gotaways, that category, are people who are detected by sensors or cameras or the naked eye of U.S. officials, but people lack the resources or the manpower at Border Patrol or other enforcement agencies to actually go interdict those people and bring them into custody. Those are the known gotaways. There's also this separate universe, unquantifiable, of unknown gotaways. And a lot of people, I would imagine, who would fit that bill are folks who come in in these trucks. Because no one sees them. We don't know that they're getting in. We don't know that they're in the back of trucks. I would imagine in a lot of cases they've got water back there, they've got some air conditioning working, and things don't go sideways, and they get driven into the United States, and then they are here, unbeknownst to any U.S. officials. There's an unknown number of those people coming into this country every single day. And then sometimes, because it's dangerous and illegal, things go wrong. And things went very wrong here, and you've got 50 bodies, 50 human beings dead. And I know that Governor Abbott put out a statement blaming these deaths on President Biden. Is Joe Biden personally responsible for these deaths? Are we going to do the whole blood on the hands thing? We know that's how the left operates. Whenever anything bad happens, it's blood on the hands of Republicans. They go there all the time. I don't want to go quite that far. Joe Biden didn't directly kill these people. But there is not total absolution here for the Biden administration, for the president, for the White House. Their policies, their decisions, their approach to this issue is a magnet, a powerful magnet, even though their words Meaningless words say, don't come, the border's secure, don't come. 
their actions, their policies, their enforcement discretion, all of that says the opposite. Come. And the message is loud and clear, received by millions of people who are coming to this country illegally. And the more you incentivize something, the more you will get of that thing. And when that thing is extremely dangerous, not just because of the violation of American law, not just because of the national security or public safety concerns, but just the physical act of getting here is extremely perilous, run by unscrupulous people, drug cartels. When you effectively green light that through the way you govern and the message that you send and the policies that you pursue, when people die responding to those incentives, there is some moral culpability on your head. This story is awful. Now, the White House spokesperson... Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, was asked about this. Here was her answer earlier in Cut 21. We're focused on them, on the facts, uh, on, and holding the human strugglers who endangered uh, vulnerable individual, uh, individuals for profits accountable. Uh, and, we're, and we're focused on continuing our historic actions to disrupt dangerous smuggling networks, including through new uh, anti-smuggling campaign that just in the first two months uh, resulted in over 1,800 arrests. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the border is closed. You know, she called them human strugglers. She really is a fitting spokesperson for this president in a number of ways. But if you get past some of the stumbles and difficulties, do you notice what she said at the very end there? The fact of the matter is the border is closed. That's what she says on behalf of the president. That's what the DHS secretary says, even under oath. He goes before Congress and says, yes, we have operational control of the southern border. Last month, approximately 240,000 people were arrested at the southern border trying to enter the country illegally. Many of them trying to get apprehended, trying to get detained. That was the whole strategy. Show up. Get processed, get released. And about 100,000 of them, that worked for them. They are now in the country, flown or bust to cities of their choosing. Bill Malugin, our colleague, his sources said in that same month, just last month, June, or May rather, we're in June now. We'll get the June numbers at some point soon. In May... On top of the 239,000 apprehensions, there were at least 50,000 known gotaways. And since the beginning of last year, there have been at least 800,000 known gotaways. And again, this unknown and unknowable number of the unknown gotaways, including a lot of people who come in packed into tractor trailers, 50 of whom died a horrible death in the state of Texas, and were discovered yesterday. It is an insult to pretend that the border is closed and to tell the American people with a straight face the border is closed. I know that people are focused on guns and people are focused on abortion and people are focused on Ukraine and people are focused on the economy and inflation and the cost of everything. There are big issues before us. There's no doubt about that. This 
is unsustainable, unacceptable, makes our country look like an absolute joke, and it is absolutely cruel and inhumane to continue this and to continue to incentivize this. Lefties used to say that under Trump, his policies, the cruelty was the point. Well, is the cruelty the point here? What is the point? It is inhumane, outrageous, and unforgivable to continue to build these incentives and effectively tell people, come on in, because it's a vast violation of our sovereignty, and it's also deadly. The Guy Benson Show just getting started. On this Tuesday, we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. So just a short while ago on Capitol Hill, the January 6th committee gaveled out. They had this last-minute sort of surprise hearing. They were expected to be out until sometime in July. Now they will resume in July, but they had this extra hearing that they added at the last minute featuring a witness named Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the right-hand woman to Mark Meadows, the Trump chief of staff during the whole election meltdown. And she made a number of allegations based on what she says she saw, including the president wanting to go to the riot on January 6th, not caring if people were armed. That's what she says. She also talked about the fury that the president exhibited when the Justice Department and Bill Barr and others wouldn't say that there was widespread fraud in the election. Here's one vignette, cut 34 from today. I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall. So she painted a number of pictures of how the president was behaving, what he was saying, what he was doing during those volatile days. And there are a number of Trump administration alumni, people who worked with her for the president in the White House, backing her up on social media, saying that she's a trustworthy, honest person. They believe her, including Mick Mulvaney. He said, quote, I know her. I don't think she is lying. Trump is attacking her on social media. We'll keep watching this. Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, the website here at the program. It's our online home. You can click on multiple interviews and other content that we have, monologues and that sort of thing. You can follow us at Guy Benson Show on social media. You can also get the podcast, which is free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. With us now, Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas. He is the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. And, Congressman, good to have you back. Guy, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I did open the show today with this disturbing story out of your home state with the death toll near San Antonio now rising to 50 migrants discovered dead in the back of a truck. Uh, Apparently, heat stroke, suffocated. I mean, it's just like a, a horrible, horrible story. And the White House is responding, saying that they want to get all the facts. The White House press secretary insisting that the border is closed. I know a lot of Republicans, especially in Texas, but elsewhere, saying that is nonsense. And there is some responsibility here in the White House and and the policies of this administration incentivizing illegal immigration, leading to uh, an incident like this, a horrible, horrible incident. Your reaction to these developments as they come in? Yeah, this is not the first time it's happened, but this one I think is particularly tragic. Now 50 bodies, and, and the whole trailer was crammed uh, and, uh, and abandoned. Driver took off and just abandoned it in that heat. And I guess what's, to me, I do think the president bears responsibility here. There have been now 750 migrants who died on American soil during his term. That is tragically uh, record levels for this. And uh, no doubt, here in Texas, we know it is due to his open borders. And I just think it is terribly cruel for the president to keep ignoring what's happening on American soil here uh, in, in the border states uh, and around the country as well. And here we're seeing really senseless deaths. And I, I just think the president should step up, take responsibility, come to the border you know, with some real solutions. But, but he's not about to do that. And I think that's another tragedy. I think, Congressman, that there are always people who want to come to this country, and I don't blame them. I would want to come to this country, too. And some of them just want to make a better life for themselves and send some money home back to their country. Um, Doesn't mean they have a right to be here. They have to respect our laws, and many of them don't. Others are dangerous. Others are people that we don't want here and should not be here. And unless you have control, operational control, over the border, then there's no differentiation between any of those people. And I think the reason that it is correct and justifiable to be so upset with this administration is not because there are some folks trying to come here. That will always be the case as long as we are the beacon that we are and the engine of, you know, productivity and prosperity that we are. That's a fact of life. But if you send signals that will increase the likelihood of people trying to make the journey, if you basically telegraph to the world The borders are maybe not completely open, but if you get here, you can probably stay. Then some of this is on you because the huge increases, the record-shattering numbers every month of people coming into the country illegal, it's not an accident. It's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a context that's very specific to decisions being made deliberately in Washington, D.C. That, I think, is the key point here. No, it really is. And and I don't think there's any question that the president's been giving a green light to the whole world 
uh, on these borders. And people know if they get here, their chances of staying here, of being captured, uh, released on their own recognizance, and, and never returning according to the hearing is very, very high. And that's why not only are, are we recruiting, unfortunately, incentivizing people to come up over for economic opportunities, you are seeing record levels of people who are on the terrorist watch list. In Houston, I live north of Houston, a community called the Woodlands, and Houston region is uh, unfortunately the number one sex trafficking region uh, in this country, in large part because of that border. Uh, and we've got 300,000 uh, young people in the sex life industry in our state. Uh, again, because of this proximity, there are wait, real wait, hang on. There's three hundred thousand child child sex slaves in from Texas about under 24 years of age in the sex slave industry in this state, as as we're talking right now. And these borders, open borders, make that even worse. And so it's just frustrating for us because every policy president uh, uh, announces is more that green light. And I sort of correct, or I, I sort of uh, like, like this, to this guy that just the president is, is bragging about killing off oil and gas jobs. Publicly, he's saying we need more energy. You know, publicly, he's saying, you know, we should close these borders. But the truth is, the whole world knows it's open. And, and this, is the, this is the consequence of it. And on top of the human tragedy on top of the deaths on top of the public safety issues on top of the mass scale violation of u.s sovereignty we are also we i'm talking about this administration this government's policies they are emboldening and enriching some of the most dangerous people in the world in the mexican drug cartels who control the whole thing i mean it's just it's unconscionable and it's almost like a second or third tier issue to a lot of people And you've got 50 dead bodies in Texas, and it's getting a little bit of play here or there. But I think for many people, they don't really want to talk about it, don't want to think about it, don't want to focus on yet another Biden crisis. So on our way, we'll go, uh, not on this show, but a lot of other places. Congressman, I want to ask you, since you talked about the economy and you talked about uh, some of these other problems on President Biden's watch, you are, as I mentioned at the top, the leading Republican on the Ways and Means Committee. You look a lot at economic data. You think about these issues very carefully. As you look at gas prices right now, as you look at inflation, uh, is there relief in sight for the American people? Is a recession avoidable at this stage? What is your assessment right now? Yeah, I don't think there's that. Regrettably, um, I don't think there's any chance we avoid a recession. And there's a good chance we're already in it. As you know, the economy shrunk. You know, the first three months of the year, there's there's uh, a likely chance it, it shrink again. And people see the second half of the year not getting better, but getting worse. And it's because this inflation has driven so much of this crisis and now higher borrowing costs. I think latest poll I saw last week, guy, um, eight, eight out of nine, eight out of ten Americans believe we will be in recession or already are in then our main street uh, small businesses feel exactly the same way and yet the president's both talk, again more happy talk out of the white house this isn't inevitable our economy's going great um it may be in states like texas and florida perhaps uh but in much of the country we are either in or headed toward recession and this is the president's recession sometimes you'll hear people ask a question All right, Republicans are standing on the sidelines. They're out of power, although 
you wouldn't necessarily know that from the White House rhetoric with trying to blame Republicans, oil companies, and Putin, right? Those are sort of like the uh, unholy trifecta that he's always talking about. He's in charge. His party's in charge of Washington, D.C. And what they say is, oh, well, look, this is a global thing, and they're blaming it on us. But what's their idea? What's their solution? The Republicans are just lobbing pot shots. It's easy to do that. And they want people to go vote for them because they're, they're sick and tired of what's happening. Well, what's the Republican plan on inflation? What's your response when people ask a question like that? Yeah, the first thing uh, I say is, uh, yeah, inflation is global. But uh, even the Demo- in the president's own Democrats uh, acknowledge that uh, his spending uh, and his uh, paying people more to stay home and to, to work and driving up energy prices has made America's inflation about three percentage points higher than uh, the rest of the world. So it's there. So here's our solution. Stop spending more government money that fuels inflation. That means get get that COVID-era stimulus and all that spending out of the budget. Secondly, rather than raise taxes, which this president's trying to do, I would we would lower taxes, especially on Main Street businesses and companies that need to invest in their supply chain and all that new equipment and technology uh, to get uh, people um, uh, production going. We also believe you ought to reconnect workers uh, to their jobs. Right now, they, they have a lot of incentives to stay home. The president has been in denial about the worker crisis um, now for a year and a half, uh, yet it is a big reason. We don't have people manning production lines, assembling the products, delivering them, servicing them at all. And as long as we don't have those workers, you're going to see the supply chain problems. You're going to see the inflation. On the energy side of this, I know the White House announced and Biden tried to roll out this gas tax holiday idea. It was pretty quickly swatted down, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats on Capitol Hill. I know there are some Republican governors who are doing that, pursuing that in their states. And I get it because governors only have so much power and levers to pull. Right? They're just operating a state in this broader context. Biden's the president, and he has said a lot of things through the years, very hostile to U.S. energy production, to your point previously. Uh, Now they're trying to pretend like, oh, we never really said those things. We didn't mean those things. We're not pursuing those policies, but we're going to, and we still want to put them out of business, but not yet, so they need to increase production and refining capacity. It's just this jumble of incoherence. And then he throws in this idea, the, the gas tax holiday, what do you make of that? Do you agree with even Pelosi and Schumer, who seem cool to the idea? Yeah, for once I am. For once I am agreeing with them. <laughs> Look, it's in, insignificant and it's insulting. I mean, it's insignificant standpoint for an average family um, uh, in states. It saves them about seven dollars over three months, which is which is the insignificant part. The insulting part is that gasoline is it's on its way to six dollars a gallon. It's just crushing uh, families, along with clothing and utilities and food and everything else. And so, you know, another gimmick that won't lower prices. In fact, most economists think that even with the gas tax holiday, people will keep driving more. Prices will go back up uh, even higher. So, look, I'm just I think people are tired of the president's excuses, the blame game and these sort of political gimmicks he thinks will, you know, will get people distracted. But right now, again, Saba, just a couple of days ago, even Democrats in the latest poll blame the president for yes. inflation and higher fuel prices. They get it, too. 
we've talked about this before, Congressman, and this is something on your mind a lot because you represent a district in Texas. But just because they keep saying what they're saying, I think it's important to keep responding with the facts. When you hear from the president and from the White House that this is really about Putin, and you can maybe address that if you want to, but it's really these greedy oil companies. The greedy oil companies have just suddenly gotten greedy now, so they're basically price gouging, and they could just lower costs. They could just do it, and they're not because they're greedy, and he's calling on them to do that. And also, by the way, they're sitting on a bunch of, uh, he always uses, what, the number 9,000 opportunities to drill, and they're just not doing it because they don't want to. And so the idea that his administration is hostile and negative on energy production here at home is not true and just a Republican talking point. You say what? Yeah, I'd say um, listen to the president's own words. He was bragging about shutting down oil and gas industry in America before he drove fuel prices up. Inflation when he took uh, office was a little over 1%. It was 7 percent when this war started. He had already driven up the cost of oil and gas, oil and gas, food, clothing and everything up before this war began. And and we all know, look, um, U.S. oil and gas is actually, for example, in the Permian Basin. That now this year will produce more oil and gas than any region in the world except for Saudi Arabia and Russia. So, you know, Texas, I know here in Texas. Oil and gas companies are trying to ramp up their production, but all they're getting from the the White House is no leases, no permits, no financing. We're trying to squeeze that down Mm -hmm. off of you as well. Yeah, they're pressuring banks. Yeah, yeah, they are pressuring banks. So, so given all that, you know, oil and gas companies can only do so much with the president who's trying, who's stepping on the air hose on them. So, I know it's frustrating for us. Yeah, I mean, and that's I think such an important point. For the White House to basically be saying angrily to these companies, do all of this stuff now, like jump right now and get into gear because we're hurting politically because the American people are hurting. Do all of this stuff. And I I thought it was interesting when the White House press secretary told that the oil companies or said that the oil companies should just, quote, do the capacity. It's like, oh, well, I can't believe they never thought of that. Let's just do the capacity, guys. Uh, that's what they're saying from the White House. But the energy secretary, you know, out of the other side of her mouth is saying, oh, yes, we very much still intend in five to ten years for fossil fuels to be gone and these companies to be put out of business. It's very difficult for an industry looking at those signals from people with power and say, what are we going to do? Uh, bend over backwards and take huge hits to our business model today in order to accommodate people and their demands who are chomping at the bit and sharpening their knives to put us out of existence as soon as possible. It's just not how the real world works. And yet that's sort of the rhetoric that they're trying to convince the American people with. Uh, And it's not going to work because I think most Americans, certainly oil and gas knows this right now, as we're having this conversation, president Biden is trying to do this build back better, slim down, trillion dollars in tax hikes. yeah what do you make of oh, that good, yeah good one i worry it's still alive because they're still trying uh, to put that together before we leave august 1st it's going to be crushing both to inflation uh and to jobs and by the way they have about 40, 47 billion dollars of tax hikes on guess who american oil and gas so oh, as wow. they're talking about yeah yeah so the industry knows this the industry knows they're continuing this attack 
in the war on them from every conceivable uh, angle if they're still trying to produce as much as they can, given the fact pipelines are being canceled. We don't have leases. Uh, Refineries are struggling uh, to be at capacity. So I I just don't think, Guy, I don't think the American people are buying this at all. Kevin Brady is a Republican congressman from the state of Texas, ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. He will remain in that position for the next couple of months as he heads toward retirement. And, Congressman, we look forward to having you back before then. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks, Guy. Take care. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Guy Benson will be right back. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Bring you a Fox News alert here with some news breaking today. Ghislaine Maxwell, former socialite and basically the sex trafficking partner with Jeffrey Epstein for years, has been sentenced to 20 years in prison, a punishment that means she could spend much of the rest of her life in prison. New York Times reporting that the sentence, quote, while severe, was shorter than the government had recommended. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan had asked the judge to impose a sentence of at least 30 years. If the conviction is upheld, Maxwell, with time potentially uh, deducted for good behavior and credit for the two years she spent in jail, could leave prison in her late 70s. See, in my opinion, this is someone who should never see the outside of a cage again. I guess the only thing I can hope is that the lighter sentence, it's still 20 years, but the lighter sentence and recommended, maybe it's because she was cooperative in informing on some of the other people who conspired to abuse these children year after year. Just an evil enterprise, and she was right at the center of it. Epstein, of course, was arrested and then allegedly killed himself in prison. She'll now have a lot of time to think about all of it in prison, but not enough time. It's like 20 years feels like the bare minimum given what she was a part of. Maybe just a modicum now of closure for these victims. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back in. Thanks for being here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when the show airs live. If you can't listen during those hours, you can always get the podcast. It is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com on demand right there, plus a lot of other goodies related to our content. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be on with Shannon Bream tonight, Fox News at night on the Fox News channel, midnight hour. So please tune in or set your DVRs. Fox News alert as we enter the middle hour. The Dow taking a beating today, closing down 491 points to 30,946. So a rough day, ink, red ink stained on Wall Street. Joining me now is United States Senator Marshall Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee, serving on multiple influential committees 
Her book is The Mind of a Conservative Woman. She's also got a podcast. And, Senator, good to have you back here. It is so good to be with you. Thank you so much. I would like to get your reaction as a pro-life woman and pro-life legislator to the Dobbs decision on Friday. I know we hear a lot from people saying that this is a slap in the face of women and an attack on women in their bodies. I know that you and tens of millions of American women disagree with that. Just give us uh, some of your impressions now that we've had a few days to adjust to this post-Roe world. Yes, and this is a big victory for all of the millions of volunteers who have worked tirelessly for 50 years to make certain that of life is created in our community. And they have held out hope that they were going to see Roe set aside. And now that we have a, a Supreme Court that has a constitutionalist majority, then they are calling balls and strikes. And, you know, Guy, I'm going to agree with some things they do. I'm going to probably not agree with everything that they do. But I was absolutely thrilled with the decisions that they have rendered in this session of the Supreme Court. When you look at the decision on um, New York City and the gun law and Coach Kennedy and the right to pray in public, these are important decisions that say we, the court, realize that our responsibility, our job is to look at a and determine if this is upholding the Constitution. The House Speaker Nancy Pelosi put out a letter to her colleagues yesterday calling on the elimination of the filibuster in the U.S. Senate in order to enact a number of abortion-related bills, including the Democrats' nine-month abortion-on-demand bill, which is so just grotesquely, gruesomely radical – way out of step with the views of Americans, far out of the international mainstream uh, as well. It's it's, uh, beyond the norms by a long shot. She's saying get rid of the filibuster in the Senate and pass nine-month abortion on demand. What's your reaction to that? This is ridiculous. Think about this. If you want to look at most of the European countries, if you want to look at most of the developed world, you don't see abortion law that is equal to what Nancy Pelosi is wanting to see. You see that in North Korea and places of that nature. But most people believe that after a heartbeat or after the first trimester that you do not have abortion. But what they want to do is to allow abortion up to the point that a child is delivered. And this is not where the Americans are. You know, this is something that is basically akin to suicide. When we talk about going in and deciding if you want I think we're to having a little bit of issues here with the senator's phone, so we'll see if we can get those cleared up. But that's not just a hypothetical bill that we're talking about here. It is actually legislation that the House, this House, under this speaker, have, has already passed. Every single House Democrat voted for this bill except for one down in Texas. The rest of them, 99% of them, voted yes. All the Democrats in the Senate except for Joe Manchin voted yes on nine-month abortion up to the minute of birth 
on demand for any reason, paid for by tax dollars, no conscience protections for health care workers. I mean, it is short of compulsory abortion, like you see in communist China. It's as extreme as you can imagine. And we have the senator back. That's what Pelosi's pushing for. She is pushing for that bill to get strong-armed through the House because they have the votes. There's basically no such thing as a pro-life Democrat or even a moderate Democrat left on that issue. And then she's now weighing in on the Senate, too, to change the rules, blow up the institution, get rid of the filibuster to pass uh, this this legislation that she's talking about, Senator. I don't think that they have the votes in the Senate to do it, but they clearly, many of them, have the appetite. They do have the appetite, but no, they do not have the votes. Kamala Harris told Nancy Pelosi they don't have the votes to do this, to blow up the filibuster and to try to do a carve out to pay to pave a way for abortion to take place. Now, think about this, Guy. What they are saying is the ability to abort an unborn child is preeminent. That is one of their preeminent issues. So they are willing to change the rules of the Senate, the processes and procedures of the Senate. They are willing to go to all these lengths in order to allow an individual to abort an unborn baby. Yeah, even a viable one in the second trimester, the third trimester. And the thing is, Senator, just on this point, I know it's sort of uh, procedural minutia to some extent, but if the Democrats were to somehow get the votes and blow up the filibuster in order to do this, they, A, don't have the votes to do that. They, B, don't have the votes for this crazy abortion law that they're talking about. C, if somehow they did... We saw them do this under Barack Obama on judges. They ended the filibuster. That came back to bite them extremely hard in the very next presidency under Donald Trump. And you got three Supreme Court justices instrumental in some of the cases that you were just mentioning a moment ago. And I would imagine if they do the same thing on legislation, it's not hard to envision a situation perhaps in the near future where a Republican majority could then take advantage of that and pass pro-life bills that the Democrats right now and have in the past blocked. But a 15-week ban or a 20-week ban, I could see that passing the Senate if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster. You sort of wonder, do they ever learn lessons from their own power abuses and overreaches that have already hurt them? It's like they just sort of file those away and move on to the next thing. You're exactly right about that. And see, the Supreme Court has said this returns the issue of abortion rules, regulations, and restrictions to the various states and to the people. But that is not good enough for the Democrats. They are not wanting a government of by and for the people. They are looking for a government that is of by and for the powerful which is them. They are not trying to return that. They don't. They are leading people to believe this is a federal ban on abortion, which it is not. It says the states, the states are going to take the lead in setting these rules and restrictions. And guy, you know, it's amazing, but probably not surprising the lengths that they're going to to have people believe this is something that it's not. And yep. to have people believe that they should want 
a an abortion at nine months in that third trimester. They should be able to make that decision. And that is so far outside of the norm, whether it's the USA or whether it's a country in Europe. Yeah, most people, even a lot of pro-choice, most pro-choice people reject that, certainly in the third trimester. And just to my point, and I know you just agreed with it, if the Democrats end the filibuster and they're worried, though, about federal abortion restrictions, those limitations on abortion at the federal level would become easier to enact in a filibuster-free Senate. So it's one of these be careful what you wish for scenarios. And I know that there's a lot of upset right now and angst about this on all sides of the issue. Uh, But we just wanted to get your reaction here on the program, Senator, because on the Judiciary Committee, you're in the thick of this stuff, and we wanted to get your perspective as a conservative woman who is pro-life. Senator Blackburn of Tennessee, thank you, as always, for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to address 2024 a little bit. Apparently, Joe Biden's getting angry about something Then we will delve deeper into what the senator was just referring to later on this hour. So much to get to on today's Guy Benson Show. Stay here. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. How are Democrats really feeling about President Joe Biden? We've gotten this drip, drip, drip of stories about some jockeying happening and some hand-wringing underway. Is he really going to run again? Should he really run again? Well, I think sometimes what people telegraph about their own intentions and their own political behavior, what they're willing to say, not say, rule in, rule out, that can speak louder than just responding to a simple hypothetical question about supporting Joe Biden in 2024. So, for example... On Fox News this morning on America's Newsroom, Abigail Spanberger, who is an endangered Democrat in Virginia, in a toss-up district, she could be in some trouble in November, she was on. Dana Perino asked her, would she be willing to have Joe Biden campaigning by her side in Virginia as she tries to stump for re-election? And she gave this answer in Cut 31. Do you think that you'll have President Biden come and campaign with you in that district? I... I intend to do the campaigning myself. I am the candidate. It's my name on the ballot. I, uh, I, I will be doing that myself. Translation, no. No, thank you, Mr. President. Please don't stand, don't stand, don't stand so close to me. That's the message to the White House from this vulnerable congressional Democrat, not too far from the Beltway. Not too far from the White House in Northern Virginia. Now, Hillary Clinton will play more from her later on for Charlie Hurt when he's here. She had some pretty nasty things to say about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. That's upcoming. But she was also asked in a CBS News interview this morning if she might run for president in 2024. Because I think there's a scenario under which... The party is desperate enough that people might be willing to give her a look. She's always willing to give herself a look because she has this lifelong ambition, this dream of being president. It's been thwarted twice over. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if she at least harbored some desire to try again, and maybe things could get bad enough that she would say, only I can step in. I'm still not sold on that. But Hillary Clinton was not willing to shut it down earlier in Cut 29. Is there any scenario in your brain that you would think, <laughs> I want to get back in? No, but I, I miss it. I, I there, miss but it. There's no scenario in 2024 that you would... <laughs> even remotely consider. Uh, You know, I I can't imagine it. I really can't. I can't imagine it is not a no. She starts kind of with a no, and then the follow-up, we get some laughter. Oh, oh, Gail. Oh, you and your questions. I can't really imagine it. I still think it's probably a no, but that was not a door slammed shut and the lock turned. It wasn't. Now, Meanwhile, this has been very bothersome to someone, and that someone is Joe Biden, the sitting president. New York Times story today, Biden irked by Democrats who won't take yes for an answer on 2024. The White House is trying to tamp down speculation about plans to seek reelection, while aides say President Biden is bristling at the persistent questions. Quote, earlier this month, when Senator Bernie Sanders said he would not challenge President Biden in 2024, Mr. Biden was so relieved he invited his former rival to dinner at the White House the next night. Mr. Biden had been eager for signs of loyalty, and they have been few and far between. Facing intensifying skepticism about his capacity to run for re-election when he will be nearly 82, the president and his top aides have been stung by the questions about his plans irritated at what they see as a lack of respect from their party and the press and determined to tamp down suggestions that he's effectively a lame duck a year and a half into his administration. Mr. Biden isn't just intending to run, his aides argue, but he's also laying the groundwork by building resources at the Democratic National Committee, restocking his operation in battleground states, and looking to use his influence to shape the nomination process in his favor. Okay. So that's the New York Times story. Biden's annoyed. He can get a little cantankerous, puffing out the chest. I'm the president. Not these people. I'm the president. And you start to wonder, even if everyone understands that he really can't do it again and would be a very poor candidate, worse than last time this round, this go-round, perhaps not against an unpopular and polarizing incumbent in the middle of a a once-in-a-generation pandemic, once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, even if that's the realization within the party, if Biden feels like he's got to dig in his heels as a point of personal pride and his ego is all caught up in it, that might shift the expectation game for me. I still believe he's not going to run again. I just don't think he's up for it. In any sense, politically, physically, mentally, I just don't think it's a good idea for them. I think ultimately he will step aside and the party will encourage him to do so. But if he's getting ornery about it, he's mad that people are talking about it. So he decides, well, I'm going to be defiant. I'm going to go even further. Not just going through the motions, which I still think that's what they're doing, going through the motions because they have to to not be a lame duck until they make that choice. But maybe they'll push him so hard that then he gets resolved after all to do it. Then what? 
especially if the worries only intensify within his party. I think this is going to be a very fascinating thing to watch play out. But the door cracked there from Hillary, the stay away from me. Thank you, Mr. President, but you can hang out at the White House. I'm fine here in Virginia. No, thank you. And then the pushback in the press, whispers from the White House, responding to whispers from outside the White House. This is sort of a drama that's playing out behind the scenes, a little bit of shadow boxing through the press. But I think once we get through the midterms, this will grow. These things will get louder. I was joking the other day, it's no longer people saying the quiet part out loud, it's the out loud part out loud at this point, and it's only 2022. We're still, what, four plus months out from the midterms. We'll keep an eye on this for sure. High drama and palace intrigue at the highest levels of the Democratic Party. The Guy Benson Show continues. Quick break here. We'll come right back. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. I'll be on with Shannon Bream tonight in the midnight hour. Burning that midnight oil. Fox News Channel. Fox News at night. See you there. Or maybe if you need to set your DVR. If it's a bit late for your taste, that's fine as well. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast on this program on the radio side. Every day, just that reminder that we love to give you. I want to pick back up sort of where we left off yesterday in this middle hour because we are systematically, day in and day out, responding to a lot of the arguments being made on the issue of abortion and the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court. And my guess is at some point, maybe sooner than later, some of the outrage and over-the-top rhetoric will start to peter out. And we will, of course, continue to cover other issues as well here on the show. We have three hours every day. But until that time comes, and so long as bad arguments, misinformation, tendentious claims, and misleading allegations are being spewed far and wide on a regular basis, we feel an obligation to push back. Just to try, I know it's hard, maybe futile. I don't want to think of it as totally quixotic because then what are we doing here? We'd be wasting our breath, but I don't think we are. I think we can help tug or nudge the conversation back toward something a little bit more serious. Something a little bit more solid in terms of intellectual underpinnings and factual information. Something more rational. I'm not asking you to agree with me on the underlying question of abortion. I am asking us to have collectively a conversation based on actual facts and not hysterical emoting. And I'll just note again, if you are to my right on abortion, which I would guess quite a few of you probably are, or to my left on abortion, which I think some of you also are, as I am center right on the issue, I think people of good faith can have disagreements on that issue. It's a tough one. 
I've laid out some of the reasons why I'm pro-life, why I think that as a matter of public policy, winning hearts and minds, enforcement mechanisms, etc., certain exceptions and accommodations are wise. And we can have those discussions and those debates. What I really have very little tolerance for is the meltdown. If you want to melt down and make factual point after factual point because it's a serious issue, have at it. But in order to signal, if you decided in order to signal your anger, frustration, outrage, whatever, you are going to lie about what's happening, you are going to deceive people, or maybe you don't even know yourself, you're just repeating stuff that isn't true, I don't really respect that nearly as much. I can't. Now, we don't spend a whole lot of time on this show responding to comedians when they're making political points, because what is the point? Sometimes we'll play stuff from Bill Maher that we like. Sometimes we'll play something that a leftist says to poke fun at it or puncture the point or what have you. And there's such a buffet right now of ignorance, it's hard to pick exactly which sound bites, which claims to address or rebut or take on. I could probably do nothing but fact-check the view on this show every day for three hours. We would do nothing else. The sheer volume of ignorance on that show is staggering. I think they're doing their show from the Bahamas or something this week. Mary Catherine Hamm was telling me they're like on the tropical week on The View, special edition, and they've got their island garb on, and they've got kettle drums, and they've got Whoopi Goldberg screaming into the camera that slavery's coming back. That sounds like fun daytime viewing, but... That show is sort of beyond help, I would say. It's just gone. It's lost. So are some of these late-night shows, the, quote, comedy shows that make pedantic left-wing arguments every night. And one of them, Colbert on CBS, it's just like group therapy for liberals, which is what Red Stees on Twitter calls it. I think that's a great insight. Here's another example of that. Wanda Sykes, who's a big comedian, she's one of the women who hosted or co-hosted the Oscars a few months ago, She went on Colbert and asserted that America is no longer a democracy because of the Dobbs decision. And I would take that point down, except I'm going to wait to do that because the Los Angeles Times, not a comedian, but a newspaper, made a similar point in their, quote, news reporting. So I'll get to that in a moment. But Wanda Sykes, it's not a democracy anymore. And then she started airing her gripes and grievances against the icky people in the middle of the country. Cut 30. The problem is that middle stuff. It's, it's those states in the middle, that, that, that red stuff. Mm-hmm. Why do they get to tell us what to do when the majority of us live out, you know, New York, California, and we're paying for all this crap, really? I mean, right? Yeah. We're, we're putting yeah. the bill. So you have the New York audience laughing and clapping as Wanda Sykes in a New York studio on the bright lights at CBS just dumping on the middle of the country those gross red states who won't just go with the program of New York and California who are so much better, obviously, just superior and footing the bill for everything, really. If you look at the direction of the economy, this is a bit of a digression, but I'm going to make it. If you look at the direction of the economy in this country, 
and the growth in jobs and the decrease in unemployment and a lot of the progress that's been made under President Biden that he doesn't get credit for because he doesn't deserve it. It's being driven by states that reject Bidenism, reject progressivism, reject the policies and values of the Democratic Party. It's the Floridas and Texases and Utahs of the world that are the engine driving this thing to the extent that we're still moving forward because with all the other problems, inflation, overspending, we might be backsliding into a recession because states can only overcome so much terrible governance at the federal level, which is what we're experiencing right now. So I know New York and California and those types of coastal left-wing states believe that they are far superior, and we should all just be so grateful for all the amazing things that they do for the country. But I think if you want to look at some of the economic engines in terms of jobs, innovation, etc., that stuff is bleeding out of those places and going to friendlier business climates in Georgia and Tennessee. Those horrible middle red places. Ew, says Wanda Sykes as Stephen Colbert nods along. He's from South Carolina, by the way. Used to call himself Colbert. That's how you actually say his last name. It's Stephen Colbert. That's his birth name. He's a Northwestern guy, so I like him for that. Go Cats. He got to Northwestern as an undergrad and decided he wanted to be more sophisticated sounding, so he changed the pronunciation to Colbert to make it seem more cosmopolitan. So there's the backstory there. As his guest is just sneering at the rest of the country, and the New York elite left-wing audience laughs and claps along. But here's the other point, and I'm not expecting Wanda Sykes to be a civ expert, or anyone apparently. Do we teach civics anymore? Does anyone know how the country functions? I think one of the greatest failings of our education system is the fact that people don't know, first of all, how to just handle their personal finances. Second of all, basic American civics. I know it would be unconstitutional because I know things, but it would be sort of interesting to require someone to pass the U.S. citizenship test before they're eligible to vote, because I think many people would flunk it. And not just on the left side of the spectrum. We need to do a lot better job. Because people basically just decide what they like and what they want is democracy and what the founders intended. And if that doesn't happen, democracy is crumbling or the founders were wrong or the founders are being misinterpreted. It's just purely people's preferences. With no appreciation or understanding of the undergirding or the, the system that's in place, the ingenious system that was bestowed upon us, thank God. She's saying that these red states in the middle are dictating things to everyone else. Well, first of all, when Democrats win national elections, driven by blue states, a lot of the decisions being made in Washington, D.C. are imposed upon the red states. Right? When one side wins and they govern and they have the ability to do so, there are consequences for the people and the states that are on the losing side. And they never complain about that because they feel like they should be able to impose their values on other people. That's really one of the key tenets of leftism, is imposing leftism on everyone. They're always accusing conservatives of, of imposing your values. Stop shoving your values down our throat. They do nothing but that all the time. To the point of suing nuns under the Obama administration. Remember that? Bake the cake. All that stuff. 
But when the reverse happens and the Republicans are governing, or in this case, a conservative majority simply interprets the Constitution correctly, all of a sudden it's like totally unfair and illegitimate that these awful people who don't live here are able to make any decisions that affect us. Right? It's only supposed to cut one way. More importantly, though, under federalism, which conservatives much more consistently believe, and Democrats love federalism when it's an opportunity to resist Trump, for example. Then it's like, oh, never mind, everything top-down because we're in charge again. That's kind of how that works. But under federalism... And under the Dobbs decision before us right now, New York and California can do what they want. If they want to be weak on crime, weak on immigration, do sanctuary state nonsense, have a revolving door in big cities, in and out of police stations for criminals. If they want to have abortion on demand up to the moment of birth and crowning, they can do that. And unfortunately, disgustingly, that is what they're doing, which I think is grotesque you go issue by issue getting rid of the death penalty any number of hot button social items these blue leftist states have a lot of autonomy to do their leftist stuff and they exercise that autonomy all the time what the state of Arkansas might do on abortion does not affect what the state of New York is going to do on abortion under this ruling and under the way that the Constitution was set up. But I'm not sure a lot of people understand that. A lot of people don't even know that this is a state's issue. They just assume abortion is now banned because that's what they get told over and over again, or at least it's heavily implied. In fact, it is stated outright falsely in the New York Times this week. I'll get to that as well because i got to fact check the L.A. Times and the New York Times. These fact checks are piling up, aren't they? So maybe Wanda Sykes, someone could just slip her a note saying, you know, actually, if you just want to spend all of your time flying over a flyover country, L.A. to New York to San Francisco to Boston, you can live your values if you want to. Even though I find some of those values gross, I find some of those policies Bad, counterproductive, harmful. And I'm not alone because look where people are leaving. People are leaving New York. People are leaving Illinois. People for the first time ever fled the state of California. Hundreds of thousands of them. Because they can't take it anymore. They can't afford to live there. They can't handle the taxes, the regulation, the crime. The aggressive culture wars over all other outcomes, which are getting worse and worse, and people are moving with their feet, voting with their feet, to Texas, to Florida, to these horrible places, the red places, as Wanda Sykes calls them, that are so problematic. People say, oh, it's chaos. In fact, our friend Jessica Tarloff said, under Dobbs, you have this chaotic situation where each state gets to make its own decisions. I understand that it's going to be a wrenching process. Because the status quo is changing and there will be some acrimonious fights and there are going to be some issues that need to be worked out. But this is the design of the founding. Laboratories of democracy, 50 of them. The federal government under the Constitution guarantees certain inalienable rights that are listed. And aside from that, basically, it's up to the states. And that's how it should have always been on the issue of abortion if seven men in robes, unelected, 
since that's the term they like to use when it suits them, unelected, seven dudes, unelected dudes in robes, lawyers, fabricated this right out of nowhere in the early 1970s, leading to the pulling away, the pulling back of democracy. And when that wrong decision was corrected, there is some turmoil right now. But at some point, the dust is going to settle, and the representatives of the people will have their say, and a new equilibrium will be reached, which will be, I would guess, dissatisfying to people on both sides of the issue, but that's also kind of by design. It's how the system is set up. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, as promised, bullet point fact checks of the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times, major newspapers in those coastal blue states, getting things wrong. We will correct that record after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. All right, let's get to these aforementioned fact checks before the break. Let's start on the East Coast in the New York Times, the paper of record. Their chief Washington correspondent writing a piece about Dobbs and the court. And here's one of the sentences in that story, quote, Senate Republicans didn't have to take the politically risky step of banning abortions. The court did it for them. False. Factually false. The Supreme Court did not ban abortions. That is wrong. A lot of people believe it because sources like the New York Times keep lying to them. I think that's part of the reason the polling looks the way that it does on Roe and Dobbs. The court said states decide which was the situation before the Roe decision. That is not the court banning anything. Then over on the other side of the country, the Los Angeles Times, with this breathtaking paragraph, the Supreme Court's decision Friday to end nearly five decades of a federally guaranteed right to an abortion in America was a seismic shock to the country and further evidence for world leaders of democratic backsliding in the United States. The L.A. Times calling that a perceived regression in American democracy. Do words mean anything? anymore. Again, this phenomenon where people just conflate democracy with good and what they want and outcomes and political results that they don't like as assaults on democracy. In reality, putting policy decisions into the hands of people and the people that they elect to represent them is literally the definition of democracy, a restoration of democracy on the issue. But the LA Times says, It's backsliding of democracy. It's a regression in democracy. Very Orwellian stuff. And once again, the media cannot help themselves but be full-blown, mendacious activists on this issue. They are not playing the role of journalists or gatherers and furnishers of information. They are combatants in the fight, and they are overwhelmingly, loudly, aggressively, often dishonestly on one side. And so the fact-checking continues apace, using our platform to whatever effect we can. Maybe it's a drop in the bucket, but it's our drop in the bucket. And we're not going to stop. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. The happy hour, 5 to 6 p.m., sponsored by, that's Eastern Time, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Delicious product, really good. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. They have expanded, so they are more likely to be in your neck of the woods now. You just type in your zip code, and they pop up with the closest locations near you. TheLongDrink.com. You can also order online, which is what we still do here. Our website at The Guy Benson Show is easy. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Our podcast is available on demand every day for free. I'll be on tonight with Shannon Bream after midnight on Fox News at night. Catch you there if you're a night owl or perhaps in one of the other time zones. If not, you can always save it on your DVR, watch in the morning. But I'll be up late with Shannon a bit later on this evening. Joining us now is Charles Hurt, opinion editor at The Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Charlie, it's great to have you back. Great to talk to you, guys. I would like to start with Hillary Clinton's interview this morning on CBS News with Gail King, famously a Democrat who vacations with the Obamas, but she's one of the news anchors over there at CBS. And she, Hillary, went hard after Clarence Thomas. And one of the things that she said is getting some attention in Cut 28, listen. I went to law school with him. Mm -hmm. He's been a person of grievance for as long as I've known him. Resentment, grievance, anger. And he has signaled uh, in the past two lower courts, two state legislatures, to find cases, pass laws, get them up. I may not win the first, the second, or the third time, but we're going to keep at it. So you're saying people pay attention to yes, this? Yes, the people he is speaking to, which is the, you know, right-wing, very conservative judges and justices and state legislatures. And the thing that uh, is, well, there's so many things about it that are deeply distressing but women are going to die, Gail. Women will die. And I think you heard Gail in the background saying yes. No discussion of the other human beings who die in the process of abortion. They don't care about that discussion at all. They don't want to talk about that. But, Charlie, here's Hillary saying, almost suggesting that she knew Clarence Thomas at law school at Yale. They were not in the same class. And several people have pointed out that Clarence Thomas actually hadn't really fully begun or completed his ideological shift yet. But Hillary Clinton is nevertheless claiming that he was this grievance-mongering, angry, resentful, bitter person. And some folks are saying, A, it could be that Hillary Clinton is just straight-up lying, which she does a lot. B, it's interesting for her to be leaning into the whole angry black man thing. I feel like that might be problematic if she were someone else and he were someone else. Yeah, and certainly in a fair world, uh, that's what uh, that she would be getting a lot of 
grief about that. But you know, the, there's a, a huge difference between Clarence Thomas and Hillary Clinton, and the, the main one being that Clarence Thomas is on the Supreme Court and she is not. Um, and I get it. You know, she's in the world of politics, um, and you know, she wrote her her husband's coattails to the United States Senate, and uh, you know, that's kind of the old-fashioned way of. Uh, getting into politics and pursuing politics, um, uh, but you know her uh, entire uh, you know the past twenty years has been uh, her 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 mission in life has to has been to become president, and she's failed at that. Uh, Clarence Thomas has not failed at doing what he's doing, um, and he sits atop the Supreme Court and uh, is building a, an incredible legacy, an incredible bank of um, of important legal rulings that will uh, be remembered for long after he's gone. And she'll be mainly remembered for having lost to Donald Trump in 2016 and uh, and prior to that having gotten – so I get why she's bitter and she's angry, but, but the racial undertones uh, of her – uh, lashing out at Clarence Thomas, and 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 uh, you know we've seen it. It's not just her. You know we've seen it all over the left. Uh, these people going after Justice Thomas um, in the most racially charged language. That good grief! If if a Republican were doing that about a Democrat, uh, the re- Republican would be just put. You know they would just be silenced. Oh, uh, yeah, well, they're singling put- out this person because of the color of his or her skin. This is racism in action. That's what they'd be saying. Oh, it's not a coincidence that they keep going after this justice. It's because he's black, but he's a black conservative, so it doesn't really count as much. Here's the other thing, Charlie, and I am inclined to believe that Hillary is just making this up, that I I cannot imagine that she and Clarence Thomas were close in law school to the point that she would understand what his sensibilities were, what his demeanor was, whether she remembers exactly what he was like those decades ago. But people who know Clarence Thomas say this is not a portrait of a man that she's painting that's recognizable, that he's jovial, he has a big laugh, he is someone who loves and relishes life and people. And by the way, someone who works very closely with him, despite disagreeing almost all the time with him, is Justice Sotomayor, who gave a beautiful tribute to Clarence Thomas at a recent conference. I guess she was asked about him, and she talked about his kindness being one of his defining characteristics, caring deeply about people, asking after people, remembering names and family members, and caring about the institution and sending flowers, for example, when she had a loved one pass away. That is a very different picture from someone who deals with Thomas all the time, and I also know other people who know him personally, who say what Hillary Clinton is alleging is really the opposite of how he is as a person. And you know what? I tend to believe them, and in this case, Sotomayor, over Hillary Rodham Clinton, whose most famous attribute is dishonesty. Yeah. No, that's a... Uh, no, that's exactly right. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you're right. He, he is a, uh, a, a, a great man with a hearty laugh and a, you know, I mean, this is a guy who his favorite summer vacation is to, is to load up in the RV and go hang out, uh, at, 
um, at uh, campgrounds that have hookups for RVs. That's, that takes a special kind of open-minded person who really does love this country and love, uh, and loves his uh, fellow countrymen and women um, and likes to sit in a you know, fold, plastic folding chair and hear wonderful stories in the moonlight uh, you know, of, of people that are of every walk of life, which I say is not is the polar opposite yes. of uh, Hillary Clinton or Gail King, for that matter. One more thing on this before we move on. It also strikes me as deeply rich and ironic, and I think probably the word here that I'm going to use is projection. For Hillary Clinton, of all people, to talk about someone else being riddled with or racked by grievance and anger – this is who she is. She is a very bitter, grievance-laden person who feels like she should have been president twice. She failed, as you point out, both times. She refuses to acknowledge really one of those losses and has gone down the dark path of election trutherism, which is, I guess, okay or permissible when one side does it but not the other. She is a walking, talking factory of grievance, bitterness, and anger. And for her to try to put that on Clarence Thomas, I think, is really something else. Yeah, well, well, you know, of course, projection is sort of, that that is the main platform of Democrats, and it's become more and more obvious. And and nowhere is it more obvious than when it comes to race and racism, uh, which they use as a cudgel to beat up, uh, to try to beat up Republicans all the time, when in fact, um, you know, if you, you know, the vast majority of Americans have moved long past all of this, but, the, but it's Democrats, in particular uh, Hillary Clinton, who are obsessed with dividing voters by race and peddling campaigns based on racial division. Uh, they're obsessed with it. They're the last people in America obsessed with it, last serious people in America uh, uh, who are obsessed with it, the last people who have any semblance of power in America who are obsessed with it. And, um, and, but, you know, it's, it's all projection, and, and that's how you can, that you can always know what Democrats are up to based on what they accuse other people of doing. Let's now shift gears to the Hunter Biden story, and I know some people will just roll their eyes. Why do we talk about this? Well, when the president of the United States or a man running for president who then becomes president demonstrably lies about anything, but particularly shady foreign business dealings and money flowing into his family's coffers, that is a story, even if people want to ignore it, scoff at it, censor it in the lead up to an election, which is what they did back in 2020. Let's remind everyone what Joe Biden said categorically about his knowledge of Hunter Biden's overseas business deals. few different answers here. Cut 16, just a flashback. How many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. Period. That was back in 2019. Well, now they've unearthed a voicemail from Joe Biden to Hunter Biden the previous year. So the denials that you just heard came in 2019. In December 2018, there was a New York Times story about Hunter Biden and his business in China. And there were a lot of questions about what he was up to, murky 
disturbing. The more we learn and the more you hear from some of these other business associates, the more you wonder what exactly was happening there and who was profiting and how and why. Of course, Hunter accompanied his father on Air Force Two to China at one point during Biden's vice presidency. Anyway, here's a voicemail from 2018 before the denials that we just played in that clip leaving this message that was preserved for Hunter Biden in cut 15. Listen here. Hey, Palace Dad, it's 8.15 um, on uh, Wednesday night. If you get a chance, give me a call. Not, nothing urgent. just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, is going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, was good. I think it's clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. I think the story that's out online now, going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, is good. I think you're clear. That story was about Hunter Biden's potential entanglements with entities related to Chinese spy apparatus and their intelligence apparatus. Joe Biden watching that, looking at it, saying, "Okay, I read the story. Looks like you're clear. Charlie Hurt, that very much sounds like Joe Biden talking to his son about his foreign business dealings and clearly having some sort of stake in it and concern about it. When months later asked about it on the campaign trail, Biden said he never had any such conversation ever, period. This seems like at least something close to a smoking gun on the truthfulness aspect of this. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, not, not just the truthfulness, but, but the actual material of uh, you know, the reason it's important, the reason that he was asked whether he had any of these conversations uh, about his about his son's business dealings is because that's a very important uh, question that leads to all kinds of much larger questions about the degrees to which, uh, uh, you know, how corrupt is this family? How much money is this family getting from foreign governments? And from whom uh, and why? To, to alter... For, yeah, and so so all of you know so it's it's vitally important. But I and I agree with you. I think I, of all of the lurid, horrid, disgusting stuff that come has come out of the the laptop uh, that that shows you know we, we everything. Uh, nothing is a great more of a smoking gun. This is one of the most important things, one of the clearest things that comes out. Um, again, not just the lie, but the which is bad enough, but then all of everything that comes with it that it that it means. And the idea that that that, um, that no, you know, we're not investigating this um, at, you know, and and Lord knows what's going to happen. And I don't, I, you know, I, I hate this governing by impeachment. I think it's a, it's a terrible way to, to, to run government. It's a terrible, it's gross politics. It turns good people off of politics. Um, but I have a hard time envisioning uh, Republicans coming into power and not launching, uh, it would, they'd be derelict to not launch genuine investigations into all of this. Well, I think they probably um, would. I think you'd, yeah. get, you'd get an oversight committee finally controlled by the party that isn't the president's party. So they'd be more likely to actually get aggressive and try to find answers to this stuff. And you only get that with a Republican House, and voters will have a lot of important choices coming up in November. And just lastly, quickly, Charlie, I agree with you. I don't really spend much time worrying about or thinking about or caring about Hunter Biden's personal issues with women or drugs or whatever it is. I don't think that that's terribly relevant or a reflection necessarily on the president. 
It's the foreign business dealings, the self-dealing, the banking on the family name, the enrichment, some of the questions about where large sums of money came from, whether they were flowing to Joe Biden, and then, of course, the outright denial from the president, then candidate Biden, saying, nope, never had these conversations, never talked about it at all, period. Here's his voice proving that that's not true, which should raise more questions. And you would think there'd be maybe some you know, political blood in the water and journalists might get on that, but I doubt it because January 6th and abortion, uh, they've, got, they've got their priorities. And so we will talk about those issues as well, but there are other sets of things that matter in addition, and we've got some of those covered right here on The Guy Benson Show with guests like Charlie Hurt of The Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Charlie, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. We will step aside. Come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. I stumbled across this on Twitter. It was someone sharing a TikTok video of a woman named Elsa Kurt. Never heard of her before. But she was doing an impression of Kamala Harris, the vice president. And someone was mentioning it's a pretty good impression. So I clicked. I'm like, why not? And it was Elsa Kurt as Kamala Harris speaking the words of Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow by Fleetwood Mac as if Kamala were coming up with these thoughts off the top of her head. And I'll admit this. This was pretty good. 32. If you wake up, okay, and don't want to smile, if it takes a little while, Okay, Uh, listen, open your eyes, okay, and look at the day, okay, you gotta look at the day, (laughs) you do, (laughs) and listen, you'll see things in a different way, okay? Goes on, cut 33. Okay, yesterday is gone, yesterday is gone, okay? It's gone. (laughs) And listen, full stop, it is gone. Yeah. (laughs) Just the gratuitous laughter. Good stuff. Well done, Elsa. Quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every day, the entire show, on demand for you, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier on the show, I chatted with U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee. A lot going on, of course. Her reaction to the news of the day right here. I would like to get your reaction as a pro-life woman and pro-life legislator to the Dobbs decision on Friday. I know we hear a lot from people saying that this is a slap in the face of women and an attack on women and their bodies. I know that you and tens of millions of American women disagree with that. Just give us uh, some of your impressions now that we've had a few days to adjust to this post-Roe world. Yes, and this is a big victory for all of the millions of volunteers who have worked tirelessly for 50 years to make certain that 
spirit of life is created in our community. And they have held out hope that they were going to see Roe set aside. And now that we have a, a Supreme Court that has a constitutionalist majority, then they are calling balls and strikes. And, you know, Guy, I'm going to agree with some things they do. I'm going to probably not agree with everything that they do. But I was absolutely thrilled with the decisions that they have rendered in this session of the Supreme Court. When you look at the decision on um, New York City and the gun law and Coach Kennedy and the right to pray in public, these are important decisions that say we, the court, really that our responsibility, our job, is to look at a and determine if this is upholding the Constitution. The House Speaker Nancy Pelosi put out a letter to her colleagues yesterday calling on the elimination of the filibuster in the U.S. Senate in order to enact a number of abortion-related Bills, including the Democrats' nine-month abortion-on-demand bill, which is so just grotesquely, gruesomely radical, way out of step with the views of Americans, far out of the international mainstream uh, as well. It's it's, uh, beyond the norms by a long shot. She's saying get rid of the filibuster in the Senate and pass nine-month abortion-on-demand. What's your reaction to that? This is ridiculous. Think about this. If you want to look at most of the European countries, if you want to look at most of the developed world, you don't see abortion law that is equal to what Nancy Pelosi is wanting to see. You see that in North Korea and places of that nature. But most people believe that after a heartbeat or after the first trimester that you do not have abortion. But what they want to do is to allow abortion up to the point that a child is delivered. And this is not where the Americans are. You know, this is something that is basically akin to suicide. When you talk about going in and deciding if you want I think we're to having a little bit of issues here with the senator's phone, so we'll see if we can get those cleared up. But that's not just a hypothetical bill that we're talking about here. It is actually legislation that the House, this House, under this speaker, have, has already passed. Every single House Democrat voted for this bill except for one down in Texas. The rest of them, 99% of them, voted yes. All the Democrats in the Senate except for Joe Manchin voted yes on nine-month abortion up to the minute of birth, on demand for any reason, paid for by tax dollars, no conscience protections for health care workers. I mean, it is short of compulsory abortion, like you see in communist China. It's as extreme as you can imagine, and we have the senator back. That's what Pelosi's pushing for. She is pushing for that bill to get strong-armed through the House because they have the votes. There's basically no such thing as a pro-life Democrat or even a moderate Democrat left on that issue. And then she's now weighing in on the Senate, too, to change the rules, blow up the institution, get rid of the filibuster to pass uh, this this legislation that she's talking about, Senator. I don't think that they have the votes in the Senate to do it, but they clearly, many of them, have the appetite. 
they do have the appetite, but no, they do not have the votes. Kamala Harris told Nancy Pelosi they don't have the votes to do this, to blow up the filibuster and to try to do a carve out to pay to pave a way for abortion to take place. Now think about this guy. What they are saying is the ability to abort an unborn child is preeminent. That is one of their preeminent issues. That entire discussion available as part of the aforementioned podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Well, we didn't really cover everything yesterday, Christine felt shortchanged on the Backstreet Boys story. She has questions, plus an observation I have about a fast food chain that I discovered. We will talk about that and more right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Tuesday edition, Catch Me Tonight with Shannon Bream, just after midnight, Fox News Channel for Fox News at night. Looking forward to that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here, the podcast. Free of charge, on demand, right at your fingertips every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, yesterday I told the tale about my Backstreet Boys concert experience over the weekend, getting to meet Brian Luttrell and his wife, also Howie, one of the other Backstreet Boys, backstage afterwards. And as I vowed to do, I did post some of those photographs on my Instagram today at Guy P. Benson. That's my handle on Instagram and on Twitter, Guy P. Benson. So you can check those out if you want to. I was pretty proud of my caption, which was backstage pass. All right. Like backstage pass. All right. Couldn't resist. And it's just a fun reminder of our Saturday evening. The reason I bring it up again is because producer Christine was, I don't want to say griping, I don't want to say complaining, that's a bit strong, but she had expressed a belief or had registered, shall we say, a protest that she did not get to ask enough questions about this entire experience during the home stretch yesterday. So we're going to let Curious Christine get in here on that front. But before we do, I just want to say this on the drive down to North Carolina, because the concert was in Raleigh and then on the return drive as well. I did stop at a fast food joint called Zaxby's, which I had seen before. This is a southeastern based chain. So the epicenter, I want to say, is Georgia and that neck of the woods. And they specialize in chicken Wings, tenders, sandwiches, that kind of thing. And I'd heard good things, but I'd never been to one. I'd driven past them. And something in my brain said, I want to try Zaxby's. This was on Saturday heading down for the concert. So Adam and I stopped. I had the tenders with various dipping sauces. He had their chicken sandwich. And we were very satisfied with that meal. So much so that on the return the next morning, right around lunchtime, I stopped for gas. There was a Zaxby's right by the gas station. So I went for round two. I had the sandwich this time. I'm also a coleslaw guy and their side of coleslaw was good. So I put some of the coleslaw onto the chicken sandwich with what they call their Zaxby's sauce. And then also pickles. The chicken, the breast was perfectly fried, not too much breading, just a light breading, It was tender. It was so good. 
if only they had tomatoes, it would be perfect. So I'm not sure I can say that it's better than my favorite Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich with extra tomatoes that I've talked about before. But it's kind of neck and neck even without the tomato. And I know this will be heresy to some of you. Close your ears if you need to. It's better than Chick-fil-A. It just is. It's better than Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has a great brand. They've got great service. I like their waffle fries. I like their little nuggets. Those are delicious. But to me, for my money, a chicken sandwich, it's Zaxby's over Chick-fil-A. And I'd never had it before. So this past weekend, Zaxby's vaulted from something I'd never even tried into easily my top five fast food chains in the country. They're on the list now. So you can send me all your notes and disagreements. That's fine. I bet you we have some Zaxby's stands in this audience as well. And if you've never had it, I recommend it. It's still fast food. Like, it's not going to be fine dining, but you don't want that. When you're in the mood for something like a good chicken sandwich, it just has to be the right combination of textures and temperatures and tastes, and they just crushed it. So I just wanted to mention that about Zaxby's because we talk about food a lot on this show. We really do. And fast food does come up, and we have arguments about supremacy and what is good to order and what isn't. So I felt like I would be derelict in my hosting roles to not just briefly go out of my way on this detour and talk about my Zaxby's experience. Okay, with that, producer Christine, before we run out of time again, and I get an earful again, are there some things you would like to clear up or ask about the Backstreet Boys experience, the backstage meet and greet, which is really not the right term. It was not a meet and greet that people could sign up for. It was like 10 people back there total. It was unbelievable, which is why we were able to get that video made from Brian to you, calling you Cookie, inviting you to a future concert. First of all, have you come down from that high yet? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm still nonstop watching the video. I can't. And every time I watch it, I just, like, giggle like, like a I was girl? a 20-year-old little, yeah, like a 20-year-old girl at the concert. It's very exciting to me. Now, one of the main questions I have is, how many times a day am I allowed to ask you if I'm going to the concert or not? Well, I would say zero because it's out of my control. And I know that the Latrells want to make that happen. But and they posted this publicly, so I'm not speaking out of school here. They had a bit of a family tragedy on Sunday. I believe Leanne Latrell, Brian's wife, her mother passed away. So I sent her a note of condolence. I'm not going to be like, P.S., where's Cookie's concert tickets, right? I feel like that's not the time or place right now. So, look, you've got still a couple weeks until that concert happens. So let's, like, get through the holiday. How about that? And then maybe you can start to harass me and I can figure out what to do about it. But I, I think they genuinely want to make it happen. And I don't think that was an empty offer at all. It's just they're dealing with some things, and you know our thoughts and prayers go out to them and their family, and I think we should just sort of leave them alone to deal with that right now rather than um, pursuing this. I would imagine you would agree. Uh, I think I would. I think I would. Now, I have a question for you. Did he know, did, to be honest, do you legit think he knew who you were right away? 
I mean, I do because I mentioned in the story yesterday that his wife recognized me at the concert and flagged me over and said, I thought that was you and gave me a hug. And he said that he likes me on Gutfeld. Wow. Like, you don't realize how many people actually... Did you get recognized at the concert? I, I did not. At least not that anyone, like, came up to say something. It happens occasionally. Sometimes people will look at you and you get a sense that they have a glimmer <laughs> of recognition, but they're not sure. And then sometimes folks will come up at an airport or something or say hi. But it's not like I'm a backstreet boy who probably gets mobbed wherever he goes. That's... You know, I am I am merely a Fox News contributor here. But, yes, a lot of people watch. Millions of people watch the network, uh, which is something that you understand intellectually, but you don't really think about on that level, like the number of people watching at any given moment. And then who some of those people might be, including folks who are very prominent, like happens to be the case in this whole experience. That is just unbelievable. Do you... Now, you said, I'm not going to say middle age, but you said there were a lot of women my age there. Would you say more than the younger crowd? It felt almost about 50-50. Did you feel young there or did you feel like, oh, like, oh, gosh, I shouldn't be here? No, I felt right in the middle. I felt exactly of an appropriate age to be there. I think the age range was, as I said yesterday, maybe early 20s to early 50s with a pretty even distribution, obviously heavily female, as I said. You would have fit in perfectly, Christine. If you go to one of these concerts up in New York and New Jersey, it's basically just an amphitheater filled with shrieking Christines, just cookies everywhere. And I bet they're all holding their hard seltzers, just drinking away. Singing away. There were some of those. There were some. There were some beers. You had people with signs. I saw one. No. Oh yeah, I saw one woman with a sign (laughs) that said, "I believe that Brian was her favorite, but she ended up marrying a Kevin, and I think she was there with Kevin and her husband." So. Oh my gosh! Well, it's very funny because my very, very first boyfriend was named Brian, and I was so excited because Brian was my favorite Backstreet Boy. So I just thought it was like meant to be. I'm like, one day I'll probably <laughs> just marry the real Brian. Like I really had thoughts about that. I just like wish you could understand me telling, you know, teenage Christine. That Brian one day was going to give you a video, like a personal video. Oh, this is another thing. You have to say this on air. So many people thought it was a cameo, that you just got me a cameo. Nope. All my friends, they're like, no, that wasn't, like, that's a cameo. I'm like, did you not see my radio host right behind him? Yeah, I was in there. I made a cameo. I made a cameo. In fact, you should probably, I should ask you to pay me. It's like I it's my first ever cameo for Christine. No, but this was this was not that at all. There was no money exchanged. We were very uh very fortunate to be the guests of the Latrells through their friend Bobby at this concert and I asked for a favor and he was totally on board. Again, he was going to call you Christine that I called an audible at the last second. No, call her Cookie. He gave me a look. He's like, like, "All right." Oh my you really are truly my best friend. I've been saying it for years. Well, but you truly, really are. No, I mean, no, I let's, just can't let's not do that. <laughs> I think that you should definitely go to the concert with me. 
if we get no, tickets. No, it's, I, no, I'm going to be gone, and but that's fine. I think that's for you and Bobby to go. And also, you need to stop with all this stuff where I'm the best friend, and then I invite you to parties, and then you don't show up. <laughs> you just need to quit playing games with my heart, Christine. Well I can't handle it anymore. So we got to go. We got to go. We will keep people posted on whether or not Cookie gets to a Backstreet Boys concert. I hope it'll work out. But again, and if you're worried about day three of this tomorrow, no, I think we're done. The story has been told. The questions have been asked. But it's a pretty cool thing. And you can go look at the photographs on my Instagram, Guy P. Benson. And Christine will be watching that personalized video, I would imagine, at least once a day for the next year, maybe longer. We'll see. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show, same time, same place. On Shannon Show tonight, midnight hour Eastern Time, FNC. Have a great evening. See you then. Talk to you tomorrow. It is The Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.